Welcome to Board Game Binge, the place where we bring you bite-sized, bingeable board game content across the industry. I'm your host, James Staley, and in this episode, we're chatting with Michael Ganey, an entrepreneur and owner of Rock Manor Games. Rock Manor is the publisher of Maxim Apocalypse, Set of Watch, and Brass Empire. Their latest title, Seas of Havoc, is currently on Kickstarter. Mike, welcome to The Binge. How are you doing? Good. Thanks for having me. Oh, it is great to have you. Uh, you know, anytime I can talk to a publisher that's got uh, a catalog, right, like you guys have, it's always a treat, quite frankly, because we can get kind of into the woods and a little, you know, go a little deep on not only just, you know, the recent title, but kind of talk about some of that journey of how you kind of got up to being the status of being an actual publisher, you know, cooperating with other uh, developers, designers, and quite frankly, even publishing other people's games is kind of, I think, where a lot of people in the industry, you know, ideally want to get to at some point. How long have you been doing this for? Uh, that is a good question. I know that I launched this, the Maximum Apocalypse Kickstarter, which was our second game yeah. uh, when my second daughter was born. So she's about to turn five. Okay. So I would say I, was, I started seven years ago because, you know, I had to design... I, I don't remember how long it took me to design Brass Empire, but like yeah. about seven years ago, Brass Empire was probably on Kickstarter and or in some process of being out. I know I spent a year before Maximum Apocalypse was on Kickstarter, sort of going to all the conventions and playtesting it. Sure. Sort of get the very guerrilla marketing style to get the word out, you know, for that game. It actually surprised me. I would have assumed it would have been longer, uh, just given how much you've done. In, in that period of time, it's uh, it's quite amazing. I was looking across the your Kickstarter. I think you've done like fourteen Kickstarter. I mean, you've done a lot of Kickstarters, right? And and very successful. Like it's not like you've just done like a couple that have been successful. Like almost all of them are <laughs> very successful. And uh, when you told that amount up, I think it was something like one point seven, one point eight million dollars. And that's without even getting into like add-ons with the pledge manager and, you know, the, the additional funds that come in, you know, kind of after the campaign, that's just purely on Kickstarter during the initial kind of funding. That's uh, that's quite amazing. Is this something that you kind of envisioned when you first started? Was this kind of the end goal or did, have you kind of worked your way into this? Uh, definitely not. Um, so it started, you know, Brass Empire just started as a personal project side hustle game that I was working on for myself. And it was one of those things like I can go around and try to pitch it to publishers to, for years and hope that someone makes it, or I can just sort of work on it over time by myself and, you know, hire an artist, do little things here and there. Yeah. So that's what I did. And I got it to a point where, you know, it's playable and looked pretty good. Uh, and I actually got invited or approved to be in uh, for pax prime they had an indie mega booth they had this mm. analog game section okay. uh where during the main exp you know indie mega booth used to buy up a big section of the main expo hall and put a bunch of indie video games in there yeah and i was sort of familiar i covered indie video games you know when i was in my 20s and stuff so i was aware of them and was friendly with a lot of them i had volunteered with them in the past so i knew about the submission process and when they opened it up to board games I was like, hey, I'm working on a board game. Why don't I just submit it and see what happens? And I was accepted. So I basically got a free, I mean, free. I had to pay for, you know, travel and, and yeah. hotel and stuff, but, but relatively affordable compared to what it would normally be for someone. And I got to have a little round table that could sit about two or three people. 
in, in the expo hall of PAX Prime. And I had Brass Empire with me and I just played it a bunch with people who were interested walking by. And I followed that up, you know, PAX Prime is in like August, I think, typically yeah. end of August. And I followed that up with my first Kickstarter in September after that. And it was just, you know, I had a full-time job. I was in computer and IT consulting. I just sort of did that on the side. And then, you know, it funded. So I had enough money to produce it and ship it. And then, you know, made a little money on the side, basically. I often find like when you see these like pro even like prototype nights, right. Or uh, in a case like this, when you're actually at a, at a convention, you know, there's almost like that little trigger that goes off when you're, when you're, when you're playing with people and all of a sudden you start looking around the table and you see people enjoying themselves. Right. And now it's, it's, it's outside of, Hey, I'm trying to get these people to, to play this game, but these people are playing a game and I'm watching them play. And it's almost like from other people I've talked to, it's like a little spark that goes off that says, I think I have something here, right? The, the, this is this is some, this is a special moment. Did is that how it felt with when you're at this uh, PAX and you're going through this, or was it still kind of? Uh, it was definitely validating, um, yeah. you know, to know that not only were you picked to be one of the tabletop games that they featured and showcased, but also, you know, when you're getting people primarily video gamers a lot of times to sit down and teach a game i think it helped that brass empire being a deck builder was pretty yeah. accessible and a faster game than some of the stuff we've done since then so i think yeah. that was actually an advantage back then you know you could sit and play almost a full game probably in 30 minutes you know no, that's great so, um you know once you get past like the rules explanation and stuff and there, there are ways to shorten the game too so you could just sort of make the point the point pool a little smaller and let people play through it and hope hopefully leave them wanting a little bit more um but yeah it was just validating i mean it's also fun being around creative game designer developer yeah. type people uh you know and it was just a stepping stone it was just one of those things like i kept it was a, it was a side hustle and then when brass empire i had physical copies you know you do a kickstarter you have a couple extra hundred copies to sell i just started going to conventions locally um when i could Oh, wow. uh, I met some great people, you know, as part of the uh, tabletop co-op group, which is a bunch of other like small yep. designers and independent publishers who get together to buy up space, but it's tabletop focused. So, you know, there's mm -hmm. like a handful of us. So the following year when PAX Prime rolled around again, they rented out like a little conference room on that second level going up to the exhibition hall and all of us were in there together. And we're all in the same place, you know, bouncing ideas off of each other. Yeah. And that's when I had a playable prototype of Maxim Apocalypse. Mm. And when people would sort of wander into the room, they didn't know exactly what it was. And you'd get people who were super interested in the game that I'd be like, oh, you want to try something new? You know, and I would use it as a playtesting space for Maxim Apocalypse. And then when I put that Kickstarter up, it was literally just, I'm going to put this Kickstarter up. I was in the process of uh, selling my IT business and my second daughter was on the way and my wife was switching careers. So I was going to sort of be a stay at home dad. Yeah. And then Maximum Apocalypse did six figures very organically. Like if you look at that campaign, it was like a slow start. And then yeah. just boom, people just kept, it had this like very organic sort of, I mean, I hate to use the term viral, but I mean, it's sort of, it's sort of what it was where there was something about it where our conversion rate on Kickstarter, like when people saw it, it was just converting very high. Mm -hmm. And I don't think I've ever had a campaign like that, that had such a steep exponential end to it. You know, typically you have sort of like a U on Kickstarter where you have a great 
first week, and then it sort of tails off in the middle. You've got the mid-campaign slump, and then it ratchets up at the end. But Maximal Apocalypse was like, you know, just just a straight up, you know, curve near the end. And, and that's, that's how we broke 100,000. I mean, it's strictly because people started coming in, seeing it, they were interested. We unlocked stretch goals, which were fueling excitement, which, you know, just skyrocketed things. And sometimes I think timing can come into play too, right? So from a genre standpoint, I think that was kind of when we're getting to the peak of The Walking Dead and so forth as well, I would think, right? So when you have kind of this post-apocalyptic yeah. world, um, you know, I think sometimes, you know, right place, right time, right hook, artwork is fantastic. Yeah, I mean, um, I, lo- I love I love the artwork for Maximum Apocalypse, and it's something I try to, I'm trying to keep it as a touchstone for like, you know, Rock Manor Games as a mission and, and a brand. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to keep that sort of comic graphic novel piece of it at heart um, in the future, at least. It's something yeah. I really like and, and want to lean into. But yeah, I think the look of it, you know, the art pulled people in, you know, all, all, all sorts of factors. You never really know. Yeah. But, but at that point, when I did six figures, you know, it was sort of like, well, I was going to be a stay-at-home dad, which I'll do, but I'll just sort of do that and do this part-time, you know, on the side because mm-hmm. it was sort of low pressure. I was sort of figuring out what I was going to do next. So, and it was just one of those things that snowballed, right? I keep working on things. You keep going to conventions, you keep networking and meeting new people. And uh, I've just continued to have games and hopefully done a good job fulfilling Kickstarters and people are enjoying those games. And it just sort of, once, when you build up that catalog, things become, become easier. Certainly. I'm certainly glad that I started when I did and I'm not starting now. You know, I think it's, you know, obviously the longer you're doing it, the barriers, you know, the easier it is. And, and yeah. more, I think there are more barriers to entry now. Well, I guess they're not barriers to entry. I mean, Kickstarter makes it easy, right? But the money that's come to Kickstarter and the professionalism and everything else is very different now than it was when I started. Certainly standing out uh, is is much more difficult without pumping in marketing dollars, right? Exactly Which, as, you're, right. as you're saying, right? Like it's just most of the successful campaigns now are have a good marketing budget right and i think that although the industry itself has gotten a lot larger right so there's way more content creators now than there was seven years ago way more games coming out on kickstarter on a weekly basis than there was seven years ago but that's also the problem there's way more games coming out at the same time so the field is very crowded i think it's a for me i think it's a lot like um like uh like the beverage industry right it's like beer there's there's a beer for everyone right so although there's you know all these indie breweries all around they all seem to do somewhat okay because you know they're they're satisfying someone's needs right and and i see the board game industry the same so i don't want to discourage people from entering the industry because i think that there's a lot of ideas that are yet to come that are going to add a lot to this industry and and i think you know get even more people excited about it but at the same time coming into the industry now uh there's a lot more homework i think you need to do uh, than maybe, you know, 10 years ago when, you know, people are kind of figuring it as they go. Well, a lot of this stuff's been figured out now and there's some pretty established models on how to go to market on these games that uh, if you're not aware of them, um, you know, it can, it can be hurdles for you to have to leap over, right? Yeah, I wouldn't discourage people from trying either if it's yeah. something they're passionate about. I would just say that I think one of the things people don't think about, and I mean, I'm talking about myself here too, because I honestly yeah. didn't even didn't, didn't do that research or homework to even think about it. But I mean, 
when I was first working on Brass Empire, it did not cross my mind to approach a publisher and pitch a publisher when I should have. I didn't even think about a publisher until I had already invested in art and had like a good looking product and was like, had a small little Kickstarter and was hoping to sell extra copies. Yes. And the reality is in the industry, you should be pitching to a publisher like when you have a solid game concept way before there's art. Um, you know, maybe you have a theme in mind or mechanic, you know, but you have a solid game and a prototype to show people because mm-hmm. publishers want to take that game and they want to get used their artists and they want to polish it and develop it, you know, and make it their own. I mean, I'm the same now as a publisher. That's what I want to do. Yeah. But that's something I had no idea about, you know, when I first started. And I think if I had, I think I would have potentially considered not doing a Kickstarter and pitching to a publisher as well. I think you need to sort of figure out where your strengths are and, and what works best for you. Um, and also try to figure out what do you, what do you want to learn versus what you have no interest in, right? Cause there's yeah, some people that like, may actually want to learn, you know, A to Z on how, on how oh, to yeah. do that. And, and that's I totally mean, it, cool. Yeah. Yeah. But if you're a pure game designer, I would definitely encourage you <laughs> to, to just pitch to publishers because if you're not interested in like business marketing <laughs> and sending out newsletters and writing yeah. newsletters and writing ad copy and, figuring out Facebook ads and doing Google analytics and building websites. Like there's so many things that are not about making and developing games that are part of the job that are not my favorite things to do, but you know, I've had the history and sort of lucky enough to have some of those skill sets that have helped me along the way. Yeah. And then, so how did you meet uh, the the designers behind uh, Seas of Havoc? Uh, So Seas of Havoc uh, is a, is a pretty interesting story because, you know, they've had a long journey to get to Kickstarter. I think the original game was conceived in 2013. Uh, one of the designers, Peter was a teacher of game design at a school and Sebastian was his student and Seas of Havoc was an assignment. That's cool. Uh, And after the assignment, uh, Peter offered to sort of mentor people who were interested in pursuing the games that they had designed further, you know, because it's an assignment you're only going to spend so much time on, you know, in a, in a, a court, you know, what's a semester of, of college, a couple months, you know, in games take yeah. like years potentially. And Peter and Sebastian linked up and kept working on the game. They got some recognition and won some awards in 2016. Uh, they won the Canadian Game Design Award for, for their game was called Sloops at the time. So one okay. of my, one of the few contributions of me uh, to, to Seas of Havoc is that I, I said, we need a new name because I don't know what a sloop is. <laughs> of course, Sebastian's a big naval guy, like nautical guy. So he's like, oh, the sloop's a type of ship of blah, blah, blah. And I was like, I had no idea that was, you know, the type of ship. Yeah. Um, uh, but uh, anyway, yeah, they, they, they won these awards. And then I think life sort of took, took them in different places. And they sort of it went on the back burner for a while when a publishing deal didn't come through. And the pandemic hit. Yeah. And I actually met them. So we have a convention sort of close to me it's down in baltimore which is about an hour and a half away from where i am in the philadelphia area uh called unpub where it's a convention for you to as a game designer you can bring an unpublished game and play test it or as a publisher you can go and play a bunch of games that don't have publishers that are literally like you know very rough prototypes with note cards and papers and different Mm -hmm. stages of development and play test games and it's open to the public too so it's great for designers who want to not only potentially find a publisher, but also just get a bunch of playtesting in. And it's relatively affordable uh, for publishers and designers. So mm. I've been as a designer, I've been there as a publisher, I've been there doing both things where I'm playtesting games I'm working on and, and in my spare time looking at playing in other games and 
helping other game designers play test their games and looking for things that interest me. So that was obviously canceled because of COVID. Uh, and in its, in its place, they had something called NunPub, which was a digital version of it, mm. where they got a bunch of publishers together and a bunch of designers. And it was basically a speed dating event where we met online via Zoom or I think it was Zoom or something. I think it was Zoom, but then we were on like tabletop simulator. Okay. Yep. And, and the host would punch us into a different room every like 15 minutes or something. So it was like... This is like a you Discord? Know. Was it like a video Discord server or something? Yeah, or? it was. Okay. We yeah, basically we just had to jump. Basically, yeah, we'd go back to like room. a lobby. Yeah, we'd yeah. go back to like a lobby, and the organizer yeah. would say, "Okay, you're going to this room, and you go to that room, and you meet with the person, you know, digitally yeah. this way." And they would have everything set up, you know, which is nice because in between, as as we're moving around, everyone can sort of reset their tabletop simulator mod or whatever. Yeah, and they're staying in. They're staying in the same mod. Uh, so that's how I met them. Peter and Sebastian um, were able to go to this convention. Uh, and, and log in digitally. And, you know, I basically did this nun pub and played a bunch of games. You know, I don't remember how many it was definitely over 10, maybe as close to 20. You know, I looked through all the pitch sheets and I I never know immediately. Like it wasn't like I played the game immediately was like, Oh, this game's definitely great. I'm signing it. But the way it sort of works for me is I sort of take a couple days to like, let everything stew in my head. Yeah. And I, and I come back and say, I go through all the sell sheets and I say, which ones do I remember? What games do I remember like being interested in or enjoying, you know, mm-hmm. based on the pitch. And I tried to follow up with those people and play a full time, a full game. Cause during the pitch, you're just sort of hearing it, maybe seeing a turn, you know, you don't have time to play a full game. So uh, Sloops was one of the games that stuck with me and I circled back around to them and scheduled a time to play and, and talk to the guys and they were fun and great to work with. Uh, so I, reached out to sign a sign, you know, sign the game. And I don't even remember if I was the only one who the only publisher was interested or not, but you know, for whatever reason they decided on me. Um, I also signed merchants of magic during that same convention. So ironically, I've been to all these in-person events where I've signed maybe one game, sometimes zero. And this digital version is the only one I've ever signed two games from one, from one like speed dating thing. Yeah. Um, so I also signed merchants of magic, uh, well, certainly, that event as well. I think you're probably happy with where, uh, that you did sign this one because you're at 126,000. I'll put in Canadian dollars. Um, it always sounds bigger, but 126,000 on a $35,000 uh, goal. So smashed the goal. A 1,350 backer still got 21 days to go. The back end uh, 72 hour hockey stick is going to kick it. This is going to be a very, very successful title for you. And you must just be tickled uh, at how this turned out. Um, can you, can you walk people through kind of the essence of how to play this game? Like for me, I got it immediately a sense of, um, uh, one of my favorite games growing up, which was, uh, Sid Meier's Pirates, right. With, uh, the super Nintendo. And I was telling you just before we went on air that, uh, I even still have it on my Xbox, right. Cause I, I just, I just love the game where you have this sense where you're attacking, you know, especially the, the ship battle mode is dynamic but it's not too complicated so you can have fun you can you know kind of turn your ship sideways so you can get your cannons kind of point at the enemy and so forth so i got a lot of those kind of vibes when i was going through um the videos and so forth on this um is is that fair or would you say that's an, an unfair way to describe it uh it's been a while since i've played the video game of sid meyer's pirates <laughs> but it sounds it sounds pretty accurate i mean yeah. um the thing that grabbed me about the game originally 
you know, when it was just sloops is, you know, you all were the same ship, you all have the same starting deck. But I love this idea, you know, you have a grid, it's a grid-based sea, and, you know, you're, it's the age of sail, so your cannons don't shoot forward and backward, they shoot out the sides of your ship. Yep. And the way they had the card designed, where you could just sort of intuitively see how the ship moves, um, I thought was really interesting and very also intuitive to play. It's like you play a card and you sort of like look at the drawing and move your ship that way. And you have a couple options, but you can sort of see on the art where your ship's going to end up. And mm-hmm. you're looking at the grid and you're saying, well, I want to go right in front of that person and turn. So I'm facing him this way and I can blast them, you know, and you can sort of see it visually. Um, so I love that tactical nature of it. Um, I also tend to favor interactivity in games versus, you know, more solo play where we're just competing for a score against other players. So I'm saying from a personal standpoint, I do like more interactivity. It's a little bit of take that. (laughs) I'm not opposed to take that. The funny thing about this game is people think, I mean, it's a naval skirmish game, no question. Yeah. But, and you're certainly shooting people. But as one of my designer friends said, when he played it at Unpub, like everyone's getting shot. So it's not like other take that games that are like Euro inspired where yeah. you feel like your engine's getting slowed down, you're just getting picked on. Like yeah. everyone's going to take damage cards and it's it, it, it equals out pretty well. So it's just sort of like you're all getting points shooting each other and it doesn't, there's no like bad feelings about it. So it yeah. is take that, but the only way you're going to take that more is if you sort of move poorly and set yourself up as an easy target, you know, for other people yeah. um, to get I, shot at. Because, But I there's, think a, when there's you- an incentive for players to take to take out the top person. Because yeah, you're seeing the score and you obviously want to get more points, but you want to, you want to shoot the person in the lead because it will slow them down. You know, you don't want to go after the person in last place. It doesn't make sense. Can you completely eliminate somebody from the game? Or is there's, it no, more- there's absolutely no player elimination. So you're just competing for infamy. Your ship never gets destroyed. Um, and the damage cards you get that slow your engine down, every time they come up in your hand and clog your hand up, when yeah. you play them, they're actually removed from your deck. Okay. So it's a very minor slowdown. It's like a turn, maybe. Yeah. And, and you can upgrade your ship as well, right? Yeah. And you're always using, before you go to the sea phase in battle, there's this worker placement phase where you can always draw more cards, take the flag that draws more cards to make up for having damage cards in your hand or buy new cards. Because when you deck build and you buy a card, it doesn't go to your deck. It goes immediately to your hand, effectively giving you an extra turn during that sea phase. Yeah. Because you play a card on your turn in the sea phase. So one of the, one of the, my favorite things to do in the game is have high card draw let everyone maneuver all their ships, you know, cause sometimes you can move to set up a shot and it's the other person's turn. They move out of your way. Then yeah. you move again and try to set it up. So what I love doing is waiting till everyone runs out of turns, saving my last few cards that are really packing a punch at the end and being like, Oh, you're out of cards. Well, I'm going to move right in front of you. You can't move. Oh, you pass. Cause you're out of cards. Great. I'm going to shoot you, shoot you again and shoot you again. <laughs> you know? So you can definitely set things up like that, which I think is so great. Um, there's also then, ways to, to set, set up yourself up for back-to-back turns in the middle of it. So yeah. I love the strategy for that and, and, you know, find it very engaging the whole time I play. And you have these different captains, right? So is it when you start off, like, does everybody start with the exact same skill set, or is there a little bit of, um, um, differential between the different captain skill sets and so forth? So there's a ton of differential. I mean, I would say that's the only thing I really stress in development. Okay. After, after, I, after I signed it, like I said, there were no ship captains. Everyone had the same starting deck and everyone was just a ship. Yeah. And it totally makes sense to develop the game that way. You want to have it balanced, right? You want to make sure everyone's the same to make sure mm-hmm. the game's balanced. But they've been working on it so long and I knew it was 
very balanced already. I thought, guys, we got to mix this up. I want to feel like I'm a captain. I want to feel like I've got a particular ship. So the, my big stress and, you know, my, I would say my only contribution to the gameplay, honestly, was the fact that I wanted captains to be a thing, to have mm-hmm. some like ability cards. You know, I wanted to be a captain with some abilities. So I just felt like I could be, I was somebody and I wasn't just a ship. And then I urged them to make the ships asymmetrical. And, you know, they both took it and run with it, which is great. Um, so, yeah, you pick your ship. Each ship has a has its own upgrades and its own unique set of starting cards. I think there's six of them. And then you mix that together with your captain who has a passive power that's mm. always up. And they have two ability cards that get shuffled into your deck. So you have a starting deck of eight cards. And you can mix and match them however you want. We have some suggestions to start with. But you're free to do whatever you want and make up your own combinations. And obviously, you're going to continue to build that deck as you play. So the options and the asymmetry is pretty limitless, which I think just lends itself to great replayability. With the, um, uh, the deluxe edition, there's this little chest image I saw on your page. Is that something you get as part of the, uh, the deluxe edition? Do you actually get that? Yeah. Chest? Yeah. Uh, in parentheses, assembly is required. So uh, what <laughs> okay. it will be is it, in, in the box, it'll be like a sheet of plywood. Yeah. So have you ever gotten any of those like plywood inserts before yeah. those organizers that are a board game accessory? We're using the same type of thing. So we're doing like a sheet of plywood that'll be flat in the box, sort of as a nicer punch board. You'll punch out all the pieces and there'll be a little instruction sheet and you'll assemble. You can, then you can assemble the wooden, it'll be laser cut and mm-hmm. you'll be able to assemble the treasure chest. You can paint it, you can stain it, you can do whatever you want to it. Um, but what's cool about doing it this way is it actually has a hinge so it opens up. Oh, and the idea cool. is you can store your components. You can store your metal coins in there and you can store your cannonballs in there. Uh, which are two of the three resources in the game. So it'll be a very thematic uh, storage solution that you can open up and everyone can grab out of the treasure chest when they get their, when they can get their things. The million dollar question is, will it fit in the box after it's assembled? It will. So I would encourage everyone to watch the Kickstarter because we're doing sort of daily unlocks, no stretch goals, but there'll be, there'll be some more uh, fun things around that in the future. And I think everyone's questions will be answered, but yeah, the short answer is yes. The box is high enough. Um, I actually have it nearby, but I'll have to take, I won't bother grabbing it, but no, it's about, it on screen. Yeah. Yeah. It's about, uh, it's, it's about the size of sort of like a deck of cards standing up straight. Yep. We've made the box deep enough to hold it. So you'll have your cards, your cards should be able to fit, you know, yep. um, you know, what do you call that? Like horizontally along yep. the, along vertically, the box. Yep. Yeah. Vertically. And then, uh, the, the chest will sit a little tire higher, but we made, we we made the box deep enough that it can fully close with the treasure chest in there. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. That's one thing that drives me nuts about sometimes when you get things that come with games as like add-ons and it's cool. But then when you go to put the game away and it doesn't fit in the box, it's like, do I have to well, I disassemble this any, every time? Yeah, and, yeah. Anybody who saw the prototype at, uh, I had the uh, treasure chest with me or I had the prototype treasure chest yeah. that I built myself with hot glue. At PAX Unplugged, and uh, even in the prototype box, you could close it and put the boxes in there. Yeah, even with cool. like a, you know, I mean, obviously, a bunch of stuff's going to change since the prototype gets printed. But yeah, even in that one, the box was big enough to hold the treasure chest. So, I mean, as a publisher, I know that you have um, you know reached this level where you're not only doing your own games, you're doing other people's games. 
what's the next step? Or is there more of your own designs coming or are you, are you exclusively focused on, on, you know, publishing other people's games or kind of what's next after Seize of Havoc? Um, so uh, to answer the question broadly about, uh, I still am pursuing my own designs and cool. I'm, I'm definitely looking at ways where I can uh, get back more to that. Um, that's definitely my favorite part. Uh, you know, yeah. game design and game development are definitely my two favorite things to do. Uh, whether it's my own game, whether it's designing my own games or developing other people's games, that's the part of the job I definitely enjoy the most. So I'm definitely looking at ways I can dedicate more time to that. Um, but as far as specifically what's coming up uh, for Rock Manor Games, mm -hmm. uh, Lawyer Up, our asymmetrical courtroom drama game, <laughs> where one player plays the prosecution and one player plays the defense. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, we had a Kickstarter for that sometime during the pandemic time warp. Uh, it's been fulfilled. The game's in stores. Uh, at least the base game is. The expansions are sold out. Yeah. Um, but we're looking at doing season two of that. So we've got three new cases for that coming out. A divorce case where you fight over marital assets. Okay. And, uh, you know, the dog, the cat, the kids, the house. The truck. Uh, yep. Yeah. Uh, it's a celebrity divorce. So we're trying, we don't want it to hit too close to home for anybody. So it's like a rich and famous divorce. Yeah. Um, we also have a private investigator, private eye case. That'll be part of season two where you're framed for a, a murder that you didn't commit. And you're trying to split your time between defending yourself in the courtroom and investigating and finding out who the true murder is outside of the courtroom. Oh, that's cool. Um, so that'll be a case. And then we have a 1980s casino heist case where a bunch of con men have gotten together and somehow, well, we think they've stolen a bunch of money from the casino, but you're going out to uh, prove that. And a lot of them are con men. So you don't know if you're, who you're putting on the stand is actually conning you, you know, and ratting for you, whether you're the prosecution or defense or, or playing you for some long con. Um, so that's sort of the theme of that. And we'll sort of sort of have a 1980s Vice City vibe to it. So those three new cases will be uh, be coming uh, probably sometime in the spring okay. uh, to a crowdfunding platform uh, to GameFound. Oh, and wow. then okay. uh, we're going to have uh, our, our Maximum Apocalypse RPG is going to get a supplemental book, a self-contained. Uh, we're doing a Few and Curse, which is an independent comic that we've done a board game for. And I know the creator. Uh, become friends with the creator. So we're doing a RPG supplement to the Maximum Apocalypse RPG that's self-contained based on the Few and Curse universe, which is sort of a Wild West post-apocalyptic world where all the water is evaporated from Earth. So if you're into RPGs, we'll have that probably sometime over the summer. And then in the fall, we're going to have uh, a game from Todd Walsh, whether it's going to be his sci-fi game he's working on or the next set of watch that is sort of yet to be determined. We're sort of developing both currently. And I'm pretty much leaving it up to him what he feels is ready first. But uh, I know he's looking forward to going to Unpub uh, this spring to sort of put both games through the ringer as far as playtesting goes, sort of figure out which one he's more confident in uh, as far as which one he wants to release first. But those will be coming close together. Wow. So we'll, we'll probably do one in the fall of this year and one, one this time next year or something. There'll be a couple Todd Walsh games hitting uh, certainly around that time frame. So you almost have something going every quarter. That's the goal. Um, yeah. I, that's currently, that's sort of my, I've realized that's sort of my maximum threshold, at least currently yeah, a lot. for what I can put out consistently and of the quality I want um, when I've tried to. And, and the other thing about that rule is that rule is, 
if I do things quarterly, I can't do four new games quarterly. I can do two new games and two expansions specifically. Yeah. Because expansions, you know the game, right? So it's easier to create new content for a system that you know can't change Mm -hmm. versus a new game, which is like the the possibilities are endless until the game comes out, right? Like you can do whatever you want to a new game. So I've 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 discovered that my bandwidth is sort of two new games and two expansions a year. Wow. Well, gosh, I mean, it's it's crazy to see how much you've literally got going on uh, at any given time. It's clear it's a passion, right? And uh, I think that probably makes it a lot easier <laughs> when you're passionate about it, right? It's uh, it's not a it's not a job. It's 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 literally something that uh, that you love. So, and I think that comes through in what we can see in the materials you've put out thus far. I want to wish you all the best this coming year, man. This campaign is, uh, you guys are crushing it and uh, it's going to be interesting to see where it finally lands, but uh, I know already you're happy and uh, you're going to be ecstatic. I'm sure where it finally finishes off. Yeah. Thanks for having me. You know, I'm really happy with Seas of Havoc and for those listening, it'll be on Kickstarter till the 25th of February. Um, So if you like piratey games with worker placement and deck building, you know, check it out back it you know you can back it for two bucks and make a decision on whether you want it once everything's been revealed at the end too that's a good point too uh, i'll put a link in the show notes uh for anybody that wants to find it it's just easy that way either type in seize the havoc on uh, kickstarter or just in our show notes there's a link where you can just click it'll take you right to the page mike all the best take care thanks for having me cheers this has been an episode of the board game binge podcast hosted by james staley Produced by James Staley and Mike Bruner with original music by Nick Smith. If you would like to watch these interviews live, simply subscribe to our YouTube channel, Board Game Binge, and you'll get access to live interviews, giveaways, and interesting board game content from across the industry. I can't wait for you to join us. See you next time.